You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is the word of the Lord. About a decade ago, an artist named Gunger released a song that began like this. It said, all this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth Could all that is lost ever be found? Could a garden come up from this ground at all? But then he goes on in the chorus to say what Isaiah envisions happening here in Isaiah 61 for people standing in dust, for people standing in rubble, asking what could come out of this. He goes on in the chorus to say this, you make, speaking to God, beautiful things out of dust. That is the message at the heart of the Christmas story, that God enters in to the brokenness of our human experience to bring about life out of death and to bring about beauty out of ashes. Now, the reason that I say that it's at the heart of the Christmas story and the reason that I'm teaching an Old Testament passage uh, on the day after Christmas is because the first voice that we hear is God's anointed Messiah. This is important because this is someone, some figure who comes in the anointing and the power of God's spirit to bring renewal. And we as Christians know this person to be Jesus. And the reason that we connect this passage to Jesus, the one who was born of Mary in Bethlehem, placed in the manger, you know the story, The reason that we connect this passage to Jesus is because Jesus connects this passage to Jesus. Centuries later, uh, after Isaiah 61 was written, when Jesus of Nazareth was just beginning his public ministry, Luke tells us that he entered into the synagogue into a time of public worship where people would stand and read the scriptures Allowed, and it says in Luke 4, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. Imagine the scene now with me. Un- unrolled the scroll, 
and he scoured the pages and he found the place where it is written. He found this very passage. He beelines to Isaiah 61. As it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine if Angie read the passage today and she says, and this was about me. Everyone would marvel, just be in shock. But this is what's happening. God, Jesus is saying, I am the one spoken of here. I am God's anointed Messiah. I bring good news to those who live in despair. I am the one that holds the power to restore lives. It's about me. This vision of Isaiah is so like at the heart of Christianity, that Jesus made it his inaugural speech using these very words to describe to the world in a timeless way who he is and what he's all about. So what that means is that when we looked in the manger yesterday and when we celebrated God's gift of his son, this is what we were celebrating. Isaiah 61 is what has come to us at Christmas. So in light of that backdrop, in light of seeing Jesus on the pages before us, let's begin here. I want to lay some groundwork and, and let us in on what is happening in this area and at this time that Isaiah 61 is spoken. So where we'll begin is with rubble. Rubble. Isaiah 61 is spoken to a people standing on piles of rubble asking themselves, how could a garden ever come out of this ground? In November 2018, the campfire tore through a Northern California town called Paradise. 85 people were killed. 90% of the structures were burnt. It was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history. But the interesting thing is, as you read the stories about the residents who have since moved back, it's almost as if the trauma of the initial loss has now been overshadowed by the frustration and the overwhelm of trying to rebuild. If you remember, at that time, three years ago, the eyes of the world were upon paradise. People were praying. We, as a church, were praying for this community. People were sending money. People were... um, sending rescue teams from all over the place. People were setting up these temporary shelters and setting out food for people to eat. But now, in the years following, reality has set in, and many of them still, to this day, live in ruins. One newspaper article that I read described the scene like this. They said, the town is like a checkerboard of vacant lots, piles of debris, uh, piles of debris and some trailers where homes once stood. So imagine that, just a checkerboard where of like piles of rubble in these burnt down homes. One woman spoke of the emotional turmoil that she experiences to this day as she drives on roads with uneven pavement where she knows that cars burst into flames with people trapped inside of it. 
having to pass over those memories every time they go to the store or take their children to school. The initial trauma of loss can occur very suddenly as a fire tears through a town, but it's often the long rebuilding process that can be the most painful. Now, imagine this on a sort of national level. That is what we find here in Isaiah 61. At the end of Isaiah, it's envisioning the scene after the Babylonian army had come into their nation, destroyed their cities, uh, tore down their homes, tore down the temple, plundered their possessions, divided their families, took certain portions of their citizens to a far off country, to be indoctrinated and to be assimilated to a completely godless culture. And then after decades and decades and decades of this, of nearly a century of this, the people are now returning home to try to pick up the pieces. That's the scene. That's where Isaiah 61 meets the people. But now at this point, life is totally unrecognizable. It is nearly impossible to make sense of what was. The people that are coming back are like archaeologists appear, are coming to a dig. They're having to sort of move through the rubble and put the pieces together, the clues together in, in order to identify what life was like. Where was my family? Where was our land? What did the city look like? What was life like here? And it seems even more impossible at this point to envision a brighter future. How is this rubble mess ever going to become a living, thriving place again? This is just absolute devastation. Can you imagine the overwhelm and that overwhelming feeling of like, where do we even start? Maybe you can actually. Maybe this is an experience that you have faced in your life. Maybe some sort of practical experience. Maybe it was a spiritual experience. Maybe something relational. Maybe something financial. Maybe something emotional. Maybe you've been in that place. Or maybe, in fact, you're in that place right now where you are standing in the rubble of all the broken pieces of what was. And now you are asking yourself, like these people of God, where do I even start to rebuild this broken mess. And yet it's into these very situations, situations of absolute ruin, absolute breakdown, that the good news of Isaiah speaks of a restored people. Let's look secondly at restored people. Now, something that is made clear in this passage, and it's said in a number of beautiful ways here, is that God's anointed one is all about restoring broken lives. He's mending, he's liberating, he's comforting, he's bringing beauty, he's bringing stability and rootedness, he's establishing his people, he's ushering in a time of joy and grace. But the question is, how does he do this? How is this anointed one bringing such a profound restoration to this people? It's interesting because we're told here in Isaiah, it comes through preaching. It comes through proclaiming. The spirit and the anointing of God is upon him to bring good what? News. That's important because 
It is not good advice that will change lives. It's not good advice that's going to change communities. It's not good insights. It's not good strategies for rebuilding. It is the good news of what God can and will do for those who trust him. And the good news that Jesus brings is that he is overcoming everything that has overcome us. Fear, failure, brokenheartedness, sin, shame, ruin, all the things that we have done, all the things that have been done to us. What he does is he releases us from the bondage to things that we thought would define us forever. We are freed from the things that previously refused to let us go. Liberated, set free, restored. And this is what's being alluded to when Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is a reference to what God had established in the very, very early days of the nation of Israel, and it was known as the year of Jubilee. And God commanded that every 50th year, 5-0, every 50th year, the people of God would proclaim a year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was like too good to be true. It was a time where all debts were canceled, cancel all student debts, hashtag, Indentured slaves would be set free. Those who had to sell their land in order to live would get their land back. It was a time for everyone, no matter how deep in it they had gotten, to be restored back to the rightful place. And it wasn't based on deservedness. It wasn't based on like, oh, you've worked really hard for 49 years now. It was for everyone a time of favor and grace. It was unbelievable, unheard of. And yet it was the way that God established his people to function. It was the year of Jubilee. It was also known as the year of the ram's horn because quite literally the trumpet would be blown to announce that the time had come and it was music to everyone's ears. Could you imagine working your fingers to the bone for 49 years, shovel in hand, and you hear the horn and you drop the shovel and you're like, my time has come. It's over. I'm set free. I'm restored. I wish I had a shofar. That's so Pentecostal. I wish I had a shofar tonight. And the, and the horn would be blown. So think about this. Malcolm Muggeridge once said this, that man blew the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down. That's the story of humanity. But here, God blows the trumpet that brings it all back together again. And this is what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christ and him crucified is the sounding of God's trumpet declaring that the time of grace is now upon you. The time of grace has come. That all that has been lost is now being restored through Jesus. And anyone can get in on this while it is available. Now, there's something interesting because when Jesus gives this inaugural speech and he declares who he is through reading Isaiah 61, he stops at a certain point. He doesn't read the whole passage. He ends with the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't go on to mention and God's vengeance. And many commentators believe that that is intentional. 
Because what Jesus is showing is that the year of the Lord's favor has come through Jesus' first coming, and the day of God's vengeance is going to come at his return. But we are living in the time between. We are living in a time of grace, in a limited time for those who will receive it. And so this is our time, this is our moment to blow the trumpet and to announce the year of the Lord's favor is upon us. Come and be restored. There's an old article, I think it's like a little over 20 years old. It was written in the Atlantic by a music and art critic. And it's written about a famous jazz trumpet player named Wynton Marsalis. One night, this uh, writer is visiting small jazz bars in New York, but it's late in August, it's the end of summer, the jazz scene at this time is pretty dead, and he stumbles into a small jazz bar, he's, got, he's sitting down, he's sipping his drink or whatever, and he's all, all of a sudden his ears perk because he hears the sound of a trumpet that sounds familiar, and he looks on stage and he sees this sort of dark figure that he kind of can identify, it looks familiar, but he can't put his finger on it. And he turns to the person next to him and asks, is that Wynton Marcellus? And the person says, I very seriously doubt that he is here right now. Turns out it was. And slowly but surely the room grew silent as he captivated the audience with every creative note. And he eventually plays like three or four songs in. He eventually plays the song, I Don't Stand the ghost, a Ghost of a Chance with You. And he's reaching the peak moment in this song, and he's playing with a band, but all of a sudden, like one by one, each instrument is dropping off until he is like totally unaccompanied. It's just him, centered stage, center stage, it's just his trumpet. He's playing amazing, and then all of a sudden, a cell phone rings. Or whatever the ringtone was. And immediately, people start to giggle. They pick up their drinks again, they turn to the people next to them and they restart their conversations. He is like instantly irrelevant. And he's standing there on stage just quiet. He just stops in this awkward pause, in this awkward silence. Like how do you recover from something like that? And after some time standing there, he has this creative thought. He begins to mimic the sound of the ringtone note for note. And he starts riffing on this melody, and then he begins to incorporate certain key changes, and he begins to suddenly build back up the tempo until he blends in the original song that he was playing, recapturing the audience's attention, and ends up receiving an extended ovation. That is creative power. That is creative energy, taking ruined magic, the very thing that killed the moment and then repurposing it for beauty. And the good news, the good news of Isaiah 61, the good news of the gospel, is that this is what Jesus is doing in our lives. Out of the ruins, he brings newness and life. Out of the ashes, of repentance, he brings a beautiful headdress. Out of the mourning that we have over sin and evil in this world, he offers gladness. Out of brokenheartedness, he brings healing. Out of disgrace and dishonor and rejection, he brings double honor and esteem. And I want you to think about the best people that you know in your life or have ever known in your life. 
salt of the earth kind of people. The best people that you know today or have ever known in your life were probably the people who have suffered the most out of anyone that you know as well. The people that are perhaps the most joyful people that you know are probably the people that have very good reason to not be joyful. The people that are the most resilient and buoyant are probably the people that have taken the most severe beating in life. The brightest and most beautiful souls are often those who have been wounded and hurt the most. God brings beauty out of ashes. Now, what makes this most remarkable is the exchange that is happening. So here's the question. How does Jesus replace sin and sorrow and shame with freedom and joy and beauty? He does this by exchanging them. These bad things, sin, shame, sorrow, he doesn't just cause them to vanish and disappear. Jesus doesn't just banish these bad things from the face of the earth. No, the gospel is that they're swapped. They're exchanged by taking upon himself the worst parts of our experience. Even from the very first moments of Jesus' life, he experienced poverty. He experienced sorrow. He experienced rejection. No room in the end for you. In his life, the same, suffering. At the cross, Jesus experienced shame and judgment and even death. This wasn't just an inspiring display of solidarity with mankind. This was so that Jesus could exchange with us. He took upon himself the worst parts of our human experience. He exchanged the horrible things in order to give us his best. This is how beauty comes out of ashes. This is how we rise out of the devastation of our lives because Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen. Now we too can rise up with him. And what happens is that when God restores ruined lives, we're told here that we then rise up to rebuild ruined places. So let's look finally, and I'll be done, let's look finally at rebuilt places. Now one of the many, unfortunately many, misunderstandings that we have in American evangelical Christianity, one that I've sadly had as well, the misconception is that God saves us from our sins so that we can go away to heaven. Maybe that doesn't sound that all wrong to you. He saves us from our sins so we can go to heaven. With that message, life becomes about huddling up, hanging on to the end until we can finally escape to a better place, or as the old hymn goes, until we can finally fly away. That's the goal. Escape hell, leave the earth, go to heaven. Probably explains why many of us have such a blatant disregard for the creation that God has entrusted us with. Escape hell, get out of earth, go to heaven. But what we see here, and what we see throughout the whole of Scripture is that the mission of Jesus is not an evacuation plan. The mission of Jesus is a transformation plan. Heaven is not about going away and getting away to a better place. Heaven 
is about Jesus bringing the kingdom to us. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, as he envisions heaven, he sees this great new city coming out of heaven, coming down to earth. It's not about us getting out of here. It's about heaven coming here. It's about the renewal of life. It's about God restoring his creation. It's about the forever uniting of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And we are called to participate in that. We're told very clearly here that he raises us up out of the ruins to become those who repair and rebuild by the power of his Holy Spirit. The same spirit that empowered Christ now empowers us. The same mission that Jesus says, I'm all about this, now we're all about. Look with me again in verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Who's they? Who's they? The previously poor. The goal is not escaping poverty. The goal is becoming someone that who is able to contribute and give back and become generous and build up. Who's they? The brokenhearted. The goal is no, not about no longer being sad. The goal is about being able to offer the comfort of God that has been offered to us. Who's they? It's the faint people. The goal is not about no longer being weak. The goal is about strengthening people in the name of Jesus Christ. Strengthened by the grace of God. This is what gives the Christian life so much meaning and so much purpose. There are a lot of cool jobs out there. I meet a lot of people that have amazing jobs that I'm jealous of, and then I realize how much schooling they had, and then I'm like, okay, <laughs> you deserve it. There are a lot of cool jobs out there, a lot of cool work, but nothing rivals this. We are all called, every single one of us, to become creative restorers. Put that on your resume. Two years, Delta College, summer internship, creative restorer. <laughs> Hire me. Creative restorer. It's our calling. We are invited to participate in seeing the things that seemed to be ruined forever being mended and being rebuilt in our time and under our stewardship, under our care. Now let's be honest for a second. Let's assess our situation because like the Hebrew people, we have inherited breakdown from former generations. We have been given a mess. And in so many ways, we have been handed rubble. We have been given the fallout of previous generations' bad decisions. We have been given broken habits, broken patterns, broken systems, broken ways of relating to others, broken families, broken views of gender, broken views of sexuality, broken ways of relating to God, broken ways of relating to his church, broken ways of seeing this world, broken politics, all of the broken things that result in the same broken outcomes. And yet, the hope that we have in Jesus 
is that the things that have been handed down to us don't have to define us. And they definitely don't have to define our future. Yes, the truth is, we reap what others have sown. But the good news of the gospel is that we also reap what Jesus has sown. We may have been dealt a bad hand, but the gospel is our ace up our sleeve. It doesn't matter what card comes our way. We know how this thing ends. We know what God planted in the rubble of the ground when Jesus was buried. It was the seed of renewal that can grow in the worst of environments. And if Jesus can raise from the dead, then Jesus can bring life anywhere. Anywhere. And there's a phrase that's repeated uh, uh, twice here in verse 7. It's double portion. It's a Hebrew idiom for ample replacement. That's really important because what this means is that our heavenly inheritance through the resurrected Jesus Christ is far more than enough. It is ample replacement to make up for what we have been handed in our earthly inheritance. Ample replacement. And here we see the dynamics of this renewal in like real, three real distinct ways in this passage. We see societal renewal. We see cities being rebuilt. We see relational renewal. We see the repairing of the devastation of former generations. In other, in other words, generational patterns being broken with us. And then we see spiritual renewal. All of God's people becoming ministers, priests. Now, we don't have time. I wish we did, but we don't. We don't have time to work through all the details here. In fact, I think that that is a lifelong conversation. But what I want to to do is invite you to begin to imagine. Just begin to imagine. Just begin to dream. Imagine our city. Imagine our surrounding cities being repaired and renewed. Patterns of brokenness being healed, racial division, gang turf wars, uh, struggling education, extreme poverty, drug addiction, infrastructures destined to fail, political corruption, seeing these trends being reversed in our time under our care. Imagine your families and the way that you relate to others being healed, patterns of abuse, Patterns of neglect being broken, homes being stable, homes being steady, faithful marriages, faithful celibacy for singles, lifelong friendships being formed, generational patterns of godlessness ending with us saying, no more, this goes no further. I am not passing this on to my children. Creating homes where grace and peace and joy fills the air. Imagine our church experiencing revival. Apathy and apprehension being overcome with passion and praise. Every Christian taking up the call to be priests and ministers. Young people breaking the trends, turning the tides, taking up the mantle to live, with, live for Christ with passion and, and devotion in our moment of godless confusion, every single one of us living with clarity and conviction, knowing exactly where we're going, knowing exactly why we exist. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want you to think about this. Together in our little church, we have farmers, artists, educators, doctors, nurses, psychologists, 
mechanics, grocers, chefs, pharmacists, lawyers, coaches, homemakers, carpenters, managers, caretakers, administrators. We have students, we have retirees, we have every level of education. We have Ivy League education. We have those who went to the School of Hard Knocks. Can I get an amen? We have those who know the justice system inside and out from behind both sides of the bars. We have book smart, we have street smart, we have born and raised, we have new to the area. Imagine the renewal that we could see in our time, in our place, in our church, in our community, that we could experience by God's grace if every one of us simply said, I'm in, I'm in, and I'm all in on this. I'm putting all my chips on this because I know this is the only thing in this world that cannot lose. Imagine if we rose up in the power of God's spirit to like these ancient rebuilders, to rebuild from the ruins. My prayer as we go into this next year, my prayer for 2022, is that it would be filled with fresh opportunity for seeking God's renewal in the places right under our nose. May God do it in our midst. Amen? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for...